Hello and welcome to the Mile End Institute podcast coming to you from Queen Mary University of London. I'm Dr Colin Murphy, a Deputy Director here at the Institute. And in this episode, we'll be discussing the history of London in the 1960s and 1970s. Now, London has occupied a central and contentious place in British society for centuries and has passed through successive cultural, social and economic transformations. However, much of the city we know today, including its diverse food culture and tourist industry, its extreme inequalities, its development and conservation controversies, its housing crisis and its struggles with police racism and community alienation were forged in the 60s and 70s. Many of the sharpest issues in London today find echoes in debates that raged 50 to 60 years ago. So what was it about the 60s and 70s that was so transformative for London? How exactly does the city's history shape it today? And does it offer hints for anyone trying to navigate London's fraught cultural and social politics in the 2020s? To answer these questions, we're delighted to be joined by Dr John Davis, Emeritus Fellow at Queen's College, University of Oxford. Dr Davis is a historian of modern Britain who has published extensively on the history of London in the 19th and 20th centuries. And appropriately for for today, his most recent book, Waterloo Sunrise, London from the 60s to Thatcher, was published by Princeton earlier this year. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Thank you. So I thought I'd start with uh, a very open question here. You've just written this book about London in the 60s and 70s. Would it be possible for you to speak about, firstly, why you wrote a book about London in those decades? And then secondly, how you went about doing so. Right. Well, um, as you said, I've worked on 1960s and 70s London, but also on the 19th century. And 20, 25 years ago, I was really a 19th century London historian. That was what my doctorate was on. That's what my early research looked at. Um, I had a kind of, um, I know this is going to sound unlikely, I had kind of um, awakening probably now about 25 years ago when, um, more than that actually, when I was in Rostock in the former East Germany not long after unification. Uh, And it reminded me, I was only there for a couple of days, but it reminded me in a really powerful way of a London that I could just about remember, barely remember as a young child. Uh, I was born in 1955, and so I'm talking about the London of the early 60s. Um, Rostock had still had a good deal of bomb damage, uh, and even though it was uh, because it had been sort of frozen under the uh, DDR, uh, still had a, a good deal of evident bomb damage. Um, smoke on buildings, smoke stains on buildings from firebombs and so on. And uh, what stuck most in my mind, uh, uh, or was most evocative for me, a smelly river, a smelly industrial river. And all those things suddenly sort of threw me back to that period, about 1960, 61, before London modernised very rapidly. Uh, in the next two decades or so, as I was growing up in the city. 
Um, and that made me think about the process of change. It means that the uh, more obviously showy elements of this process that everyone knows about, the swinging London, the Carnaby Street and so on, um, are, uh, although inescapable, are a kind of incidental part of this process. I was really looking rather at a more drawn out process of urban change, uh, which, as I say, was prompted by this suddenly very evocative uh, trigger memory, as it were, of um, uh, of a city that had been more or less left behind in the 20 years that I'm writing about. Um, does that, I hope that makes some sense to you. It's, it's a very kind of personal way of getting into a topic and not the, probably not the way that most historians go about getting most, getting into most of the things that they write. But it was what, um, it was what set me off. It makes a huge amount of sense and is very striking, actually, to think about, uh, East Germany have having resonances with London of your childhood in the early 60s. And I'd say probably it's how most historians get involved in a subject in one way or the other. They, they have some personal connection in many respects. Um, you've obviously said you had to deal with the swinging London cliche in some form. And there are chapters about Soho, about Carnaby Street. Yeah. But one thing that really struck me reading your book was the kaleidoscopic approach, if I can use that term, that you take to the 60s and 70s. So you have a really fantastic chapter about cab drivers. You have a chapter about strip clubs. You have a chapter about the motorway. You have a chapter about the Docklands and the death of popularism, something I'm hoping we'll discuss later in this yeah. podcast. So why did you choose that approach? Did it have any challenges and what opportunities did it offer for capturing this rapid change that you've just discussed. Yeah, uh, the as you say, it, it's probably an unusual way of doing an urban history, doing the history of a city. Uh, there, there are two. There were two main things that prompted me to go down that route. One is a rather grubby sort of administrative consideration, which will make sense to you and to any uh, other academics listening to this that I realized as soon as I embarked on this topic I on this work I realized that it was going to be a very large piece of work and it would take a long time to do as indeed it did um, and we can't in our <laughs> present academic climate allow ourselves the luxury of taking 15 years to write a book and not doing anything else uh, between conception and publication now we have this a uh, big beast called the research evaluation framework, and uh, we need to turn stuff out on a, a more regular basis than uh, than that would imply. And so, from the beginning, I was looking to chisel off bits of work uh, as I went along, which I could publish. And I think five of the sixteen chapters have been published uh, previously in uh, most mostly in collections of essays. So part of it, the, the grubby part, as I say, was just sort of uh, protecting my back from the uh, the wolves of the um, REF uh, to make sure I didn't have a complete blank for years on end. Um, that's the technical stuff. But the, the the longer I went, the the more I went down this road, the more I realised that it's actually 
very difficult to write a, a kind of linear history of a place as complex and diverse as London is. And it's not only difficult, but I think in many ways it's unsatisfactory. You could go down the the route of the uh, city biography, but that, uh, which has been done by people like Alexander Ritchie on Berlin and so on, done very well, done very well, but uh, that generally implies a much broader sweep and, and um, a much more synoptic approach, which... Uh, uh, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't fit with the way I tend to go about research, uh, and is potentially unsatisfying in other ways. Um, or you can just uh, limit yourself to doing a lot of um, fairly detailed and close focus things, and run the risk that nobody ever reads them. I wanted to get something uh, to end up with something that lay somewhere in between those two poles. Um, so I and, and I also felt that if if you want to describe the the life of a city uh, within a generation in the way that I was trying to do, there are aspects of it. I and mean, you mentioned the the taxi drivers chapter. So I mean, I, mean I, I love doing that. I I think as it happens, I think it does contribute something towards the overall argument of the book, which I'm going to in a minute. But um, but. You can't imagine writing a linear history which suddenly veered off into 25 pages on taxi drivers, can you? It, it, it's something that would would at best command a paragraph or so, um, which I find rather unsatisfying. I had a chapter on eating out, which I think is quite an important part of urban life and was a, a rapidly expanding part of it in the period I'm describing. Uh, again, um, you, you couldn't to veer off into writing about restaurants if you're trying to um, stick to an overall narrative structure. Um, and, and so that sort of material would go missing. That was the plus side for me. Um, the minus side, I mean, it's been clear in, in, in a couple of uh, actually quite positive reviews, which just said, why isn't there a chapter on this? Why isn't there a chapter on that? Uh, that once you go down this thematic road, and there are 16, I should say, there are 16 chapters in the book, each of which is more or less self-contained and readable in its own right. I mean, more or less freestanding, let's say, and readable in its own right. There are 16 chapters in the book. Um, I think if I had unlimited time and uh, unlimited word space, I probably would have added another... <laughs> five or six, but each of them was taking about six to nine months to research and, and then you know, longer to write. Uh, and we uh, can't go on forever in this, in this mm. operation. So um, I did round it all up at the 16. But I personally, I would have, I would have liked to have done something on, uh, well, above all, on the secretary and and office culture and so on. I think that's something that that is quite prominent in the first chapter, but could have benefited from being drawn out into a chapter of its own, uh, because one of the themes of the book is the transition from a, an industrial to a service-based city economy. I would have liked to have done something on commuting. Uh, I had a master's student a few years ago who did a very good dissertation on on commuting, and uh, I, I felt as uh, as he was working that uh, I, I would have liked to have done something on that myself. So I'm less clear how it would have fitted into the overall 
argument of the book. So I, I felt that this thematic structure gave me freedom to write about aspects of urban life that would otherwise probably not have been covered at all uh, in a more conventional history, but that it, it also raised the, the question of, you know, why this and not that? Um, what, what else could have been included? And the thing is already 210,000 words long. Uh, so uh, I, I think there comes a point where you have to sort of call a halt and say, right, that's 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 that. Um, I can write more um, essays and articles and publish them in journals um, on the themes that are missing if I uh, if I have the energy and if I so wish. Uh, you you have to draw a line at some point, but um, th 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 there were certainly aspects I would have liked to have covered in addition to the ones I did. Yes, um, it doesn't read. Uh, like 210,000 words though, which perhaps might be partly why the reviewers are asking, oh, I wanted something on this, I wanted something <laughs> on that. It's because it does read really well. Uh, and based on that, actually, before we go on to your argument, which has is quite striking and particularly relates to the concept of Thatcherism and how important that yeah. is for histories of late 20th century Britain. But before we get onto that, there are a number of characters that really come out of your book because of that deep focus you have on uh, race riots and race relations with the police or on eating out or on uh, the rise and fall of uh, Carnaby Street. Are there any that you particularly liked? I know this is a, a dangerous question, <laughs> but uh, are there any characters that really came out of your research that you couldn't get enough of or you were just so fascinated by? That's an interesting. Nobody's asked me that. But I, I think... Um... One who I really warmed to, and I'd never met her, I'd like to meet her, uh, is uh, Faye Mashler, the recently retired restaurant critic of the Evening Standard, um, who wrote some amazingly perceptive, amusing reviews uh, from 1972 onwards. As I say, she's recently retired. She clocked up almost half a century doing this, um, once the Standard reappeared. And... Um, I, I found her reviews an extraordinarily good source for that chapter on, on eating out. I, I'm not, not just describing uh, what was on her plate, but the whole, her whole understanding of the restaurant industry and the humour that she brought to everything she wrote. I, I, I certainly uh, warmed to her. Um, I think also, I, I, I mean, again, she's, <laughs> she's, Still alive. I won't be the only person who warms for her, but uh, Mary Conn, who again I've never I've never met, but um, struck me again. She had a master's, uh, sorry, an undergraduate student who did an excellent dissertation um, a couple of years ago on Mary Conn, uh, and she's a fascinating she's a fascinating figure, a kind of somewhere between first and second wave type of feminist. Uh, I, I saw her. I didn't go into what sort of feminist she was in the book because it wasn't, uh, that, that was a road not to take, I think. But uh, uh, again, an extremely creative, interesting um, figure. You're going to go on and ask me if there's anyone I didn't like, um, <laughs> I suspect. Uh, I, I think as a... As a historian, I've become sufficiently thick-skinned not to get unduly frustrated by people. I, I found myself, I won't say disliking, but I found myself becoming impatient with 
some of those people, well, in particular, I think people who really did kind of desecrate the urban landscape in the uh, in the sixties. I know this is not an unfamiliar thing to say, but then uh, um, I still say it uh, that, that an awful lot of damage was done to the urban fabric to um, buildings which could have been preserved uh, and, and which were to, to me growing up in the city um, real landmarks which would suddenly disappear overnight and by people who were essentially pursuing profit you know which uh, was what developers etc do but we're essentially pursuing profit without regard to the uh, environment that N million Londoners used every day of their lives. Uh, if it's not too kind of personal, I can remember when I was about 17, um, 16, 17, I, I, I come from South East London and I used to regularly go into um, Charing Cross on the train from, from Catford, Catford Bridge. And I'd, on every journey, I'd try to look out at that little clutch of streets um, around what they now call Waterloo East, uh, Rupel Street and Whittlesey Street and so on, um, which, is a, which is a kind of perfect early 19th century set of terraces. Uh, and every time I went, I thought they would, they would go next time and this would be the last time I'd see them at the height of the um, property boom um, before the bubble burst in 73. Uh, I expected them to go any minute and, and they never did. And of course, they then became sort of massively gentrified and they're still there, which I'm glad of. But an awful lot of stuff disappeared. I still regret the um, demolition of the Euston Arch. I just don't know if I ever saw it. Um, I, it, it, it was demolished when I was about five, six. Um, and coming from southeast London, we didn't use Euston very often, but I probably did go there. And I, I think that was that really was a piece of, of vandalism. So the people behind that, I, I, I don't think there are many um, individual names that could be um, <laughs> could run you into any risk of libel suits anyway. But the people behind that kind of um, destruction, I suppose, are the, are the ones. But I, I won't be the only enemies they have. Uh, I won't be the only enemy they have. <clears throat> so um, I, I, otherwise, I I think I became fairly kind of detached about, uh, about the people I was dealing with. But uh, the ones on the plus side of the ledger, as I say, Faye Mashler and Mary Quant, yes, definitely. I think they are they are people who um, I ended up um, admiring enormously. Fascinating. On Faye Mashler, we are going to get onto the bigger themes of the book in a second, but one of the interesting points you make in the Eating Out chapter, which is partly about the diversification of eating out yeah. culture in London, but you also make the point that once... London residents of a certain income, which was not massively high, relatively speaking, mm. got the habit of eating out. They were very reluctant to give it up, even yeah. during the very tough stagflationary 1970s, when that became much harder to uh, maintain in terms of personal budgets. That has potential residents today, given the cost of living crisis. So yeah. I, I wondered if you would talk a little bit more about why that was. Uh, why is it, what is it about eating out in yeah. comparison to other luxuries that makes it uh, hard to give up once you've uh, acquired the habit? 
I think it's one of those things that, um, well, during the pandemic, because uh, it's very noticeable that people, even when they couldn't get to restaurants, would treat themselves by going to delis or whatever and buying takeaway food of a kind of um, luxury nature. Uh, and, and, and of course, we didn't have a pandemic, thankfully, in, in 1973-4, which was uh, the, the point that uh, the time that Marshall was talking about in, in the quote to the, to the effect that you just summarised. Um, I, I think it was it was possible to just say, right, we'll go, as she says, I think we'll go, we'll go, we'll eat out once a fortnight rather than once a week or whatever. You could, having got the habit, you didn't have to drop it altogether. And I think even, you know, this, that winter in particular, 1973 to four, was very difficult. It was one reason why I, I, I'm always cautious about the recent sort of, um, revisionist wave which has said that the 70s were perfectly all right and you know, nobody ever had any discomforts over anything it wasn't true of that winter um, and i think people were looking for consolation of, of that sort at that time uh, that that chapter comes after the one on the collapse of bieber um which uh, and, and the juxtaposition was intended to try and draw out what was and wasn't deemed essential uh, by Londoners in that period. And we're talking here mainly, as you say, about younger Londoners with a given level of disposable income, that ultimately the the sort of um, uh, rather uh, sort of bohemian 60s fashion that found its expression in Bieber in the, the, the Kensington High Street store was something that came to be firmly identified with the 60s and, and seemed sort of unnecessary in the 70s. And ultimately, though there are all sorts of other reasons for it, uh, Bieber goes under um, and it's going under in 1975 is taken as symbolic of the, the end of the 60s. I mean, a number of people wrote about it in precisely those terms at precisely that time. Uh, the, the, the fun we'd all had a decade earlier and uh, Swinging London had, um, had, had run out. Whereas uh, eating out never had quite that sense of pushing the boat out and, and, and of a kind of uh, flippant hedonism, etc. Eating out was was a, seen as okay. It's something you don't necessarily have to do. You can live out of cans for months on end, but uh, it's a way of you know raising morale <laughs> briefly in what, as I say, I still continue to regard as quite a difficult time. Mm. And it was a particularly difficult time for London in terms of its economic structure. And here we might want to pivot to the broader themes. You mentioned historical revisionism on decline, but there has also been a related historiographical turn towards emphasising deindustrialization yeah. as a key element of this period. Now, London is a bit of a canary in the coal mine for this because... Popularly, deindustrialization is associated with the 1980s and with yeah. big clashes like the miners' strike. I was watching Sherwood, um, the new television yeah, trailer last so night, yeah. Um, yeah. Set, set, set in Nottingham, uh, where the 80s are the real battles. Yeah. 
And Margaret Thatcher is obviously very central. But in London, it's not, it's it's a bit different, isn't it? So I wonder if you want to talk a bit more about this, about deindustrialization in London. Yeah. Um, It's something that I don't think, even growing up in the city and living through it, uh, it hadn't really been born in on me until I started doing this work. Quite how early and how dramatic London's deindustrialization was. You can really trace it to 1966-7 and it then intensifies in the early 70s. And it's fair to say that London has actually gone through most of the worst of its deindustrialization uh, by the time the book ends. And there is there is more to come, but uh, the, the the modern pattern of London, I think, is very largely set by 1979, which is why I ended the book there. Um, and it has an effect that um, did you know, feed in a big way into the overall conclusions of the book. Now, having having written these, or having having structured the book in the way I did with these sixteen. Um, freestanding chapters. Of course, I I was quite anxious to uh, make it look like something more than a collection of essays. And in the event, this more or less determined itself that quite early on, um, and I can actually locate the moment because I, for some years I taught at Oxford a, a special subject paper based on the work I was doing, something we're encouraged to do. And I can remember the point in, in one of those classes would have been in about uh, 2007 or so, I don't know, I mean, um, a long time ago, when the penny dropped, really, that what we were seeing was a combination of majority affluence um, and improving um, circumstances for the majority, but quite an intense minority deprivation, which was becoming worse for those suffering from it, um, which was not exclusively, but very largely associated with the transition away from the industrial economy. Uh, so we all know, I think, well, I think we all know about the uh, uh, decline and closure of London's docks, um, which of course bears on the the whole East London story that you alluded to just now. Um, But with it goes a whole raft of inner city industries, many of them connected with the Riverside trades, but not all. Um, Others just went under because London was becoming too expensive a place in which to manufacture in small workshops that the access in the inner city, uh, transport access was terrible, uh, that uh, workshops were uh, dilapidated, elderly, um, and so on. And that we were seeing at the same time a situation in which more and more people were eating out, <laughs> as, as we were saying just now, um, but and, and more more people were uh, feeling better off despite everything and despite the very high levels of inflation in the 70s, which did surprise me, perhaps it shouldn't have done. Um, but at the same time, some people were um, suffering really very severely. I, there's a, you know, I think the only actual graph in the book, um, which I felt was quite an important little visual, 
uh, shows that it, it, it graphs GLC research from Greater London Council research from the early 80s on London family incomes using the family income survey. Um, and it showed, I, I only found this fairly late in the day in my research, but it, it supported uh, a kind of generalized impression I'd already been getting. It shows that uh, the people at the top end, the upper quartile of the income distribution, um, had seen a steady rise in real incomes across the 20 odd years I was looking at. Um, the people, the median, the median Londoner, whoever that was, though less well off, obviously, by definition, than the people in the top quartile, had nonetheless seen his or her income rise at a roughly similar rate over that period. But the people in the bottom quartile had seen what I calculated to be a 12% fall in real incomes between 1967 and 1979. A 12% fall over 12 years is, uh, is, is pretty rough. Um, and that... Uh, say it reinforced a general impression I'd already been getting that uh, you are seeing a sharper distinction between a majority who are relatively comfortably off and a minority who are not. And that minority include and his situation is getting a good deal worse, that minority includes obviously people like old age pensioners um, whose condition was position was far worse then than it is now, um, but also um, the long-term unemployed and deindustrialization is creating them in, in significant numbers. So that that's what put me in mind of the you know more familiar image of 80s Britain, um, a period in which obviously Thatcher won um, three elections on the trot uh, as prime minister, and uh, uh, she couldn't have done that without extensive majority uh, or. I suppose technically you have to say very large minority support, um, but uh, uh, she was able to uh, repeat her electoral success despite the existence of a very large number of unemployed in Britain in the early 80s and subsequently. Um, and the London pattern, I felt, was was anticipating what would happen in Britain in the 1980s. Uh, in other words, majority comfort um, juxtaposed with minority deprivation. Uh, the more I went into this, the more parallels I saw. I mean, some of them were um, sort of verging on the coincidental, but others weren't. Uh, so you have, um, I mean, most obviously, of course, the you mentioned just now there are a couple of chapters on race and the second of them looks at the riots over the Notting Hill Carnival in 1976 uh, which clearly anticipate the urban rioting across Britain including in London of course uh, in 1981 and 1985. Um, you have uh, there's a chapter on the outer suburbs which looks at the formation of a quite a barbed um, suburban anti-socialism, anti-development and so on, which uh, to me seemed very, actually very Thatcherite. It focuses on the, um, on the uh, 
potential reform of the local tax system, which of course eventually is what will, um, more than anything else, will do for Margaret Thatcher's premiership in 1988 to 90. Um, uh, there's a good deal of real resentment against the rates in, in the suburbs. And you're seeing, as I say, a sharply focused anti-socialism developing in the suburbs, which also um, attaches itself to defense of the environment and, and um, resistance to urban development. Uh, that linked in my mind to the chapter I've already spoken about on conservation. Um, conservation, although, you, you know, we, we sort of instinctively think of Thatcher as, as being, um, you know, pro-business and pro-development and so on. Um, the 1980s was actually a kind of golden age of conservation in Britain. And you can see the roots of that uh, in in London in the uh, and it reflects a kind of anti-planner mentality associating the planners with the 60s, which is the decade that Thatcherites hate most, of course. And uh, the uh, the uh, defeat of the three big um, and really quite uh, ambitious um, urban redevelopment projects in central London, uh, in Covent Garden, in Whitehall, and in Piccadilly. The defeat of those three uh, exercises in the late 60s and proposals in the late 60s and 70s um, is at the core of the conservation chapter. And that reflects, uh, I think, something that's not obviously Thatcherite, but actually is associated with the conservatism of the 1980s. And then you've got minor things like um, the you know, the first proposals to abolish the Greater London Council, um, which becomes a kind of Thatcherite standard in the mid eighties. Uh, they they are um, evident in the in the early seventies and so on. There's uh, there are all sorts of echoes of what was to come. Uh, the more I started looking for them, and of course, you know, we historians all do that. Uh, the more I started looking for them, the more I, the more things I could see, and I sort of tried to round them up. Um, towards the end of the book. But the overall message that London in this period um, is the first part of Britain, I think, to gradually detach itself from what you might call welfare state paternalism, what I do call welfare state paternalism in the book. In other words, there's no, I think there's no kind of uninhibited neoliberal reaction going on here, but rather a gradual sort of growing out of that um, welfare state harness that uh, people of my generation have been born into, um, a sense that people didn't want to be um, confined in the way that they felt the Atlean welfare state had confined them. Uh, and that that was becoming evident by the mid to late seventies, and it was something that had grown organically in a number of different places and a number of different aspects. Uh, I, the, the the taxi drivers that I looked at were people who'd transformed themselves in the main from being East End proletarians, uh, socialists, or communists uh, to as I say in the title of the chapter, to become Essex men, to be um, living in the um, northeast London suburbs, um, Essex, London, uh, Romford and, and Basildon and so on, um, very much greater London, I have to say, um, 
they become owner drivers rather than uh, sort of wage laborers of cab proprietors and so on. And, and in the process, they developed a set of, well, they'd always been individualists, as they would tell you, but their individualism was being applied to a kind of uh, mindset that was more um, obviously entrepreneurial. Um, and, you know, directly, I think, uh, comparable I mean, they, they by the end of the period had quite a lot of time for margaret thatcher and that was something that you know it wasn't something i'd expected to find when i started working on taxi drivers you know mm. this, this process is a is a slightly random one if, if you're interested the the reason i um decided to do something on taxi drivers was that um i happened to be at liverpool street station looking at wh smith's one day and found a pile of um the autobiography of Alf Townsend, taxi driver, and uh, which is a very good book, in fact. I mean, these these drivers were smart people. And reading it, I thought, well, that would be a good study to take further. And uh, yeah. and the more I got into it, the more I could see that it fitted into uh, wider views of London's evolution, which I'd already formed. Yeah, there's a t- couple of points I want to pull up uh, from your fascinating discussion there. Uh, because it is true that even though it's a kaleidoscopic account, there is a running theme, which is that key elements of what we consider to be Thatcherism in inverted commas, deindustrialization, growing inequality, growing racial tension, particularly with the police, um, kind of like a two thirds, one third society yeah. had formed by 1979. I mean, you end the book in, in 1979. So there's questions there about causation, about what actually causes these changes. At the Violin Institute, we did another podcast on neoliberalism um, yeah. a few months ago uh, with historians Florence Sutcliffe Braithwaite and Alan yeah. Davis, um, who yeah. uh, co-edited a book that I know you'll be familiar with, yeah. which um, questioned this idea of a neoliberal age. So there are some thematic resonances with what you just said and what they just said. So I encourage listeners to uh, look up that podcast too. But one question I had on this is, there's perhaps one major change in London, which does happen in the 1980s, which you only mentioned briefly in the book, uh, but which might push slightly against this and point to ways in which Thatcherism was distinctive. And the Thatcher government did make its mark on um, uh, London in the 80s. Or perhaps there are two things. One is the Docklands redevelopment and the other mm-hmm. is the Big Bang. So to turn to the latter first, um, how much do you think something like the Big Bang was distinctive from what you talk yeah. about in the 60s and yeah. 70s and how much was it um, a continuation of those trends? Yeah, Big Bang, um, you're right. I mean, the first thing to say is, of course, uh, I never felt I could write authoritatively on the financial sector. Um, I'm just, I'm not a primarily an economic historian. Uh, Aled, of course, who you just mentioned, has, has done that brilliantly in his recent book. Um, which I, I would strongly <laughs> recommend to people who, who do want to understand more about the uh, development of the um, of, of financial policy in the post-war decades. Um, and I felt I couldn't do it. I, I just, uh, I, what I could do, of course, could have done, had it not been done already, was something more like a social history of the city. But of course, David Kynaston um, has written a full volume social history of the city from its from the early days of the financial sector in the 17th century and whose fourth volume goes into um post-war 
the post-war city very effectively. Uh, I just felt there was no, I, I didn't have either the space or the competence to write about the city. I was aware that it was missing, um, but of course, Big Bang is later. Um, the city that Kynaston describes is a pretty conservative, with a small and large city, but a, a pretty conservative place. Uh, there didn't seem to be a lot that I could gain from writing about um, 60s and 70s city. I mean, I might have been wrong about that, I, uh, uh, but I didn't think I could add anything much to what Kynaston had done, and I couldn't tackle the um, financial side in the way that Ella Davis and Ronald Mickey and so on have done. So that's that's not there. Um, it, it certainly is a, it, it's a vital aspect of later Thatcherism that I just couldn't uh, legitimately work into the overall thesis. It just wasn't there in the, mm. in the period I was looking at. Mm. If anything, the, I think these people, the, the, the people who were um, running the city institutions in the 60s and 70s, many of them would have regarded Thatcher as a bit of an upstart. I don't know that, but I, I think that she would have... Um, they would have taken. No, I, I, I think that's that's pretty plausible. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I think that she would have taken some getting used to it. Let's put it that way. Um, these stand uh, true uh, here, though. I I did focus that that chapter sort of ran towards. Um, I suppose what well, that chapter was that, that chapter tried to do. So quite just a lot just of to work. say, we should say which chapter this is. This is oh, on, sorry, the um, chapter on the East on, End. It's on. Um, uh, it's called East End East End Docklands and the decline of popularism or something like that, which is a rather kind of Delphic title. But uh, the argument there, um, which I'll try and explain briefly, there's, there's quite a lot to it. I, I'm a South Londoner myself, and so I've always been slightly detached from the familiar sort of, you know, lovely old community destroyed by the planners or lovely old community destroyed by the Luftwaffe or whatever, which is not to deny that the Luftwaffe and the planners did a lot of damage to the East End of London. But I, I've always felt that it's important to recognise that people were, however lovely the community was, people were leaving the East End in large numbers, really from the beginning of the 20th century. Mm. It's accentuated by the war, but this is not um, a, a new trend. It's accentuated by the war, and then, it, of course, it's accentuated by the closure of the docks, obviously. Um, but this is not a new trend. I remember the East End of the 1970s, at least, well enough to not be remotely surprised that people wanted to get out of it. I mean, parts of it really were a dump, however um, good the community was. Uh, the, that chapter sort of focuses on an earlier regeneration scheme um, from the Attlee period, um, which was the Stepney Poplar Redevelopment comprehensive development area, I should say, which is the la largest comprehensive development area in the country at the time, and it was first mooted in the late 40s, but which goes on grinding out its uh, attempt to completely remodel the city um, well into the 70s, at which point it's effectively abandoned to be replaced by the first proposals for Docklands uh, regeneration. Because once, once the uh, it was clear that the docks were going to close, the premise of the Atlee and the 1940s comprehensive development 
scheme really disappeared. That premise was that this would remain primarily an industrial community and uh, mm. the scheme was designed to make it a more livable in industrial community than it had been. Once the docks go, then uh, all bets are off and you're then forced to rethink the whole business. Um, and my, my feeling was that it was... Uh, it was actually a very difficult wicket to bat on, if you like, but uh, the, particularly when the dock closures get underway, you are getting in the stand a really severe drain of people of working age, of the you know, sort of economically productive elements of the community. And this worried local leaders at the time. And that that... Uh, the risk of getting a bit technical here, that that undermines what I call the popularist premise of the whole um, redevelopment ethos, the post-war redevelopment ethos. That uh, Now, by popularist, I'm looking back to the uh, protest of the popular councillors who were imprisoned in 1921 for contempt of court following their um, their own protest over the... Uh, unfair distribution of local government income across metropolitan London. Uh, their argument, which I think eventually becomes accepted and indeed orthodox by the 1940s, is that richer parts of the city, the, the metropolis as a whole, should support those parts without enough rateable income, without enough uh, of a tax base to um, be able to maintain the level of municipal services that a poor population required. And although this was controversial and got them into trouble and into prison in 1921, by the 1940s and welfare state period, it was a good deal less. And what was um, what was proposed in the redevelopment of the 40s was, as I say, a kind of wholesale reconstruction of an industrial landscape and industrial area to make it good to live in and it does all look great um in principle the problem is that it, it's it turns the area into a kind of perpetual building site for a quarter of a century um and in the process <laughs> alienates still more people than have been alienated by the local environment already and there are there are other things wrong i mean it, it, there's a good deal of industrial pollution there's a meth drinkers mm. problem which i mm. write briefly about and so on there are just good reasons to want to leave the east end if you could um and that once you see the acceleration of the uh of the population decline which is startling between the mid-60s and the 70s uh, with the dock closures and all the uh, other industrial um, closures associated with the docks uh, once you see that happen then you're, you're getting into a kind of meltdown uh, that it's beyond any local authority or any public authority i think to do anything about short of wholesale redevelopment what form that will take, of course, was still contestable and was contested. And what I say at the end of the chapter was that um, it, you could t you could guess by the late seventies, despite the number of false starts they had already, you could guess that the next step in the regeneration direction would be towards 
private enterprise towards a kind of new town model rather than um, local authorities running the business. Um, and that it would have a distinctly kind of entrepreneurial flavour to it. And, and that all those things do really come to pass. But after the period covered by the book, uh, we know how Docklands turned out. Uh, I don't think any of the present day urbanists I know would, uh, Londonists I know, would say that Docklands have been a completely um, resounding success. There are all sorts of things wrong with that. Um, but I'm not particularly eager to pass judgment on Docklands redevelopment as it's panned out. Yeah. I, I think it, it was something that has happened and it was and the way it happened was in many ways predictable from what had gone before. But the key point I was really trying to make there was that there was a certain model of welfare state regeneration or welfare state redevelopment which was being tried as energetically as possible in the East End in the 50s, 60s um, and simply ran out of steam that uh, and it ran out of um, money as much as anything else ran mm. out of government patience and so on in in the mid 70s yes and reading that chapter there is a real sense that uh the east end of london is a very revealing limit case of what we call the welfare state the post-war welfare state yeah uh, particularly in housing uh so it's a yeah it's a, it's, it's a very striking chapter I mean, the, the, it become Tower Hamlets and Newham, which are the two boroughs I'm looking at directly in that chapter. But Tower Hamlets in particular becomes more, uh, I mean, it's called by its critics, it's called Councilville. It, it's something like it's over 80% social housing um, by the end of the period we're looking at, which in itself was a, was a kind of distortion of the initial aim of the post-war redevelopment that um, the the borough, um, Tower Hamlets in particular, but Newham goes in the same direction really. The borough sees housing as being more important than all the kind of landscaping and uh, environmental improvements that were built into the original plans. And yeah, for for the obvious reason that they want to keep people in their borough and stop them leaving. I mean, the most pressing problem um, mm. for Tower Hamlets Council appeared to be this sort of, uh, very rapid departure of people of, of um, productive age. And um, and so they embark on a very uh, a kind of blanket rebuilding programme, uh, which works on its own terms but of course not everyone wants to live in a council house anyway not everyone certainly wants to live in a high-rise council house particularly after the Ronan Point disaster in 68 which causes many people to um, question the safety and the desirability of high-rise living um, and all this at a time when both councils um, but particularly Tower Hamlets are uh, devoting themselves to covering the area with uh, high-rise blocks and and so it, it's people you know I, I'm not under any illusions about the uh, sort of housing that existed before this municipal building I, th I think um, other things being equal I would have preferred myself to have lived on the 20th floor of a modern council block than to have lived in the slum conditions that are likely to have existed in many of the areas that were cleared for those council blocks so I, I'm not one of those who says oh well you know the, the, all these 
our council architects should have spent 10 minutes living in their in their buildings that sort of thing i i i think that providing large scale mass housing very quickly is a difficult business and that it was approached in good faith and though things went wrong with it uh, at many points uh, you can understand what they were trying to do but uh fact remains that many people pretty well anyone who had the opportunity to move out of the area um would choose to take it at that point and they and they were doing so in large numbers particularly when they were no longer tied by their own employment locally mm. and uh really interesting resonances and contrast with the the housing crisis today in yeah. London, which is yeah. really quite interesting um it's very interesting to return to these debates in a quite different context yeah to draw this podcast to a close, I thought I'd ask a question that historians hate. So apologies <laughs> about this. But we are living through an interesting moment in the politics of London today and yeah. this, the social and cultural politics of London today in particular. London is quite often the villain in the piece in a public discussion, particularly around levelling up and about regional yeah. inequality. <laughs> And the current mayor, Sadiq Khan, even talks about anti-London bias or anti-London populism. Are there any resonances or contrasts that you found from researching London so extensively 50 or so years ago with London mm -hmm. today? Mm -hmm. And are there any insights we can draw from the past that your book discusses to understand the place of London today in the politics of the UK? Well, yeah, um, I did think about this sort of on and off throughout the period that I was researching the book. And of course, the final chapter, I mean, this does contrast with the present, I think. The final chapter looks in part at a kind of wave of declinism that runs through London opinion in the mid 70s. Um, it's I think a knock-on effect of the uh, deindustrialization I've already described, um, a sense that the the city is on the way out, and and um, you know it's a rather ludicrous comparison with Jarrow in the thirties that I do allude to. So, whereas now, um, although there are real grounds for worrying about the economic future of London following Brexit and following the turbulence of the pandemic, um, we still, the rhetoric still tends to suggest that London is a, is a sort of privileged body within the, within the nation. Um, then the rhetoric rather suggested that London was on the way out, uh, which, as I say, is, is, is just not, viable I and mean, it's just not a viable argument uh there was still what we're seeing was a, a often rather sharp-edged transition from a primarily industrial economy to a primarily service-based one and that was bound to leave its victims and if you thought of uh, prosperity as being a reflection of a society's manufacturing economy, then London appeared to be suffering. But uh, if you looked at it in other aspects, then um, London was actually doing pretty well and was then uh, drawing large numbers of people from the productive um, 
age groups uh, into the city, even if not into the East End um, at that time. And it was just undergoing a process of often quite sort of turbulent or traumatic change. Um, and it's noticeable now that I mean, you've probably seen the, the figures a couple of weeks ago, which showed that, uh, I mean, a lot of attention was given to the fact that Northern Ireland was uh, the uh, one of two areas that had recovered to its pre-pandemic levels of um, economic activity or growth. Uh, the other one, of course, was London. And, and it reminded me, certainly, and anyone else, I think, who looked at those figures, that London is actually pretty resilient. Um, We've heard a lot about levelling up, obviously, in the last few years, and less stridently, really, since 2010. I mean, obviously, it was latent in um, Theresa May's rhetoric about the left behind and so on. Uh, and obviously, it was uh, it was in, implicit in the whole Northern powerhouse arguments of the Cameron Osborne regime um, but it never seems to, they, they never seem to come to anything and I, although I think London is certainly the, the, the target of a good deal of um, populist criticism at the moment I think it would take a lot to, um, to unsettle the London economy or really to diminish its place and its prominence in the national economy obviously Brexit hasn't helped in that direction but um, I don't see London as uh, as being particularly vulnerable to, and, and I, I certainly think uh, you know it's more or less self evident, isn't it, that as far as levelling up is concerned, the rhetoric has far exceeded the reality since twenty nineteen. That may change, but I wouldn't put a lot of money on it. Well, quite, and I think that's a very good place to finish. Um, I'd like to thank our guest this week, John Davis, for a really fascinating discussion and all of you for listening. And I really do encourage you to read the book because it has something for everybody in it. Please do subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can also find the Mile End Institute on social media. And if you sign up to the mailing list on our website, you'll always hear the first about our future events. Thank you very much for listening.